Well, howdy, hey, Tessa. Howdy, hey, Jesse. How you doing? Doing well. It's the new year. I have some, you know, New Year's resolution goals that I probably won't hit, but I'm excited to at least try. Let's hear them. <laughs> no, th- no, just kidding. It's the same old, same old, just, you know, trying to get bigger in the gym, build more Legos. I don't know. Stuff like that. I feel like everyone should have the Legos resolution. Yeah. Yep. Legos are the best. They are. I don't I know agree. what to say. Okay. So, um, actually, real quick, how was your week? It was good. New I Year- mean. New Year's was good, too. Yeah. New Year's was awesome. It's just fun coming back from long vacation to work, you know. Takes like a week to reacclimate for me. <laughs> yeah, same here. I totally understand what you mean, and I'm sure a lot of people understand. Yep. Cool. So, how many stories do you have for us today? So, I kind of switched it up today. I've got two stories that are currently happening and my opinions and thoughts on them, mm-hmm. as well as one Reddit story. So, when you say currently, like they're active stories? Active stories. Okay. Developing well, stories. I might have an idea of what you're talking about, but I'm excited to hear it. So, yeah, go ahead. And then, um, yeah, then I have my story afterwards. And then real quick before we get started, um, just for all of our listeners, just wanted to mention that any images that we have for our stories today, we will post those images on our Instagram account, and you can view those there. Um, Also, if you would like to send in any of your scary stories, whether they're true or false, you know, made up, uh, please feel free to send those in to us. You can email those to us at SpookySoupPodcast801 at gmail.com, or you can DM those to us on our Instagram. And if you don't send your stories in, I will turn your eyeballs into gazpacho soup. And she's she's serious, guys. I'm serious she's, here, guys. She's frill. You know, I have a rusty spoon. It's just been begging to be used. Yikes. Okay, send them in. Okay, uh, go ahead. The floor is yours. All right. So, this has been a really big, monumental week in the world of true crime. It's been insane. Insane. I'm sure everyone here listening, and I'm sure you, Jesse, are aware of the Moscow-Idaho murders. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're not aware and somehow haven't heard of this, um, back in November, four college students at the University of Idaho were found brutally stabbed to death in their off-dorm room. Or, sorry, on their off-campus housing. So it's been this huge deal in the news. New details keep emerging. And, you know, this week they arrested their suspect. So we're going to dive into that first, just a little bit. Awesome. So first of all, the suspect has been identified and arrested. And his name is Brian Koberger. And digging into his history, he's actually a pretty scary guy who's had red flags for a long time. Do you know anything about him, Jesse? I don't know much. Um, I, yeah, I know he was, was he like a criminal psych major or something like that? Yeah, so he's a PhD candidate for criminal, sorry, criminology at Washington State. Okay, and then wasn't he also like, for his senior project or whatever, he was like trying to get into the mind of a serial killer and like, and then he had to... He had to present how he would take, like, go about murdering someone or something. I think so. I could be wrong, but 
Yeah, insane. Something like that. Right. So, starting off, um, let's go back to when he lived in Pennsylvania. That's where his family's from. So, there's a local brewery in Pennsylvania, and it's reported by the bartenders and the owner that our guy Brian would go in and get a beer, and then he would sit down and just watch. He would just examine people. And then after two beers, he would start getting a little bit more intimate to the point where he would harass women who came to the bar. He would go up to them. He would ask them very specific questions like, what's your name? Where do you live? And then he would get even more creepy than that. Not going into too much detail, but you can imagine. Sure. There's like borderline, like there's a, there's a border of being creepy and just people watching. Right. And he's on the creepy side of things. And then on the flip side, there's the people watching for fun. You yeah. Know, like, like sitting down. Because like you're bound to have some fun crowds, right? Sure. You go to Walmart. That's yeah, what Walmart you go to Walmart bingo. for, right? Yeah. Exactly. But it got so bad that the bartenders were also being harassed by this guy. So it was the same. Every time he'd come in, he'd have one beer. And that whole time, he would just sit there alone watching people. And then by beer number two, he would start harassing people. And at this point, the owner was getting really sick of it. And he just went up to him one day and was like, hey, Brian, we appreciate you coming in, but you cannot speak to people here. You can't speak to my bartenders like this. And they actually flagged his ID in their system so that when they would scan his ID, it would pull up this note talking about how he regularly harasses women and that after two to three beers, he becomes dangerous and that the bartenders needed to keep an eye on him. So this has been a red flag for a while. And then point number two, like we said, he was getting his PhD in criminology. He had his associates in psychology. And then I think his bachelor's and master's in something related to that. I can't remember, like forensics or something. But yeah, so he's learning criminology. After the murders were committed, he went back to school like nothing happened. He finished off the semester and took his finals. And classmates noticed a complete shift in his behavior, like a dramatic shift. So he's a TA in this class for his PhD. And before the murders, he would grade these papers heinously. Like he would write paragraphs about why these students were so dumb and why they're making these mistakes on their papers and how they need to be better. And he would argue relentlessly with these students. And it's reported that he made them really uncomfortable because when he wasn't arguing, he was just sitting and watching. And he was creepy, and he would say creepy things. But then, after the murders, he became everyone's best friend. He was super joyful, outgoing, talkative, really animated. He graded super loosely, gave people fantastic grades, no feedback of any kind, not even constructive feedback. He just became this completely different person that was actually pleasant to be around. He also wore gloves everywhere he went after the murder, likely to hide cuts to his hands. He was pulled over twice on the same road trip back to Pennsylvania with his father after the murders happened, and this happened between each... Sorry, the first time he was pulled over, he was speeding. The second time he was pulled over was nine minutes later for following a car too closely. 
So these cops had no idea they were dealing with the Moscow-Idaho murderer when they pulled him over. But in the body cam footage, he looks absolutely terrified. And he has just the most insane, crazy look on his face. He looks guilty of something, but the cops are kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to give you any tickets, so they just let him off with the warning. So, to top that off, he looks like Ted Bundy. I don't know if you've seen he, pictures of him. I actually thought that exact same thing when mm-hmm. I saw his photo. It's scary how similar he looks to Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. So, in my opinion, he also kind of looks like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. So, if, like, Ted Bundy and Buffalo Bill had a baby, you got Brian Koberger. There you go. Yeah. And, yeah, as jokingly as that is, he genuinely does look like a serial killer. And then... Today, the day that we are recording this, some monumental news came out. And I don't know if you've heard this. I haven't. I've been working all day, so no, I'm excited to hear. This confirms a theory that I've had going for a long time, since the day I heard about the murders. So, four students were killed. Two roommates in that house were sleeping through the entire attack and were unharmed and did not call the police until noon that morning. And in the call, they said that a woman was unconscious, and they think she could need help. But that was it. So, I have been weirded out and suspicious about these roommates ever since that day. And now we have some pretty big news that I think kind of confirms my suspicions. So, one of the two surviving roommates and not to mention unharmed roommates, actually came face-to-face with a killer that night. According to her, she woke up around 4 a.m. that night to the sound of someone weeping. When she walked out of her room, standing there was a masked man dressed in all black. She made a point of saying that she didn't recognize him, but he was athletically built and had bushy eyebrows. She goes on to say that she just stood there frozen in shock as a masked man came face to face with her, walked straight toward her, then walked past her toward the sliding glass door. She then went back inside her room and locked the door. That's all she did. Okay, suspicious. So here's why I've been super suspicious of these roommates who have been unharmed. Now, it's just my opinion, so don't come for me. Um, But let's get into it. So the only picture that I can find and that's circulating the internet shows the foundation of the outside of the house where this murder happened. Now someone's blood from the inside of the house pooled enough to soak through the ground or the wall to the outside wall and then dripping down the concrete foundation of the outside of the house. Yeah, that was one of the most eerie photos I've ever seen from a crime scene. It's shocking. It's like worse than seeing a bloody crime scene for some Mm. reason. It just hits deeper. So when the call to the cops was made from one of the surviving roommate's phones, mind you, it happened the next day and the call wasn't placed until noon. And the caller called to report that a woman was unconscious. Now it's possible that details of this phone call are being withheld until the trial to protect the quality of information for the prosecution or to protect jury authenticity. However, it doesn't make any sense to me that the caller found a roommate's corpse and didn't report any blood. 
for the blood to pool and soak through the walls and run down the outside of the house, there's no way that the scene wasn't a bloody, chaotic mess. For the caller to report an unconscious woman and not say that she's been stabbed or the classic there's blood everywhere is just crazy to me. If you were truly worried about the unconscious woman's well-being, especially being your roommate and friend, you would report that she's injured and has lost a lot of blood so the dispatcher has the accurate information to send the right people to the scene. On top of that, I believe the roommate who came face to face with the killer is involved somehow. Place yourself in, your sh- in her shoes. You live in a house with some of your closest friends, and you wake up around 4 a.m. to the sound of crying, so you decide to get up and investigate. And upon walking out of your room, you stare into the eyes of a masked man who just happens to not say or do anything to you, but just walks past you and goes out the door. You then go back to your room and just lock the door. So think about this. If you were this roommate and you experienced a masked intruder, playing the devil's advocate here, I can understand the instinct of self-preservation and locking yourself in your room. But to not call the police once back in your room, to not start screaming for help, to not even go check on your friends and wake them up to tell them you need to leave right now because a man just broke into your house, that's crazy. And let's just say she's innocent. To not even alert her friends in the house that a man broke in is a really crappy thing to do. She put her friends in danger. Why didn't she call the cops until noon? Why didn't she report seeing an intruder earlier that morning when she finally placed the call? A true friend would be doing anything they could to help their other friends. If she was scared that he was still in the house and was scared to place a call, why wouldn't she text her friends? Why wouldn't she call the cops and just leave the line open and whisper? Why didn't she do anything? Now going back to Brian Koberger, he made a post on Reddit a while ago. This post contained a link to a survey he made asking murderers and criminals how they committed their crimes, how they chose their victims, how they did or didn't get away with it, and how many people helped them in the act. When Brian was arrested, he asked the officers, did you arrest anyone else? If you think about it, the man that was killed was dating one of the roommates and was spending the night at their house. The couple was undoubtedly sleeping in the same room, so if one of them was being murdered and fighting back and was receiving all of these defensive wounds, as the corpses have, did it really not wake up the other one? Would it wake you up if you were sleeping in a bed and heard the commotion of your partner literally being stabbed to death? That means it would have been two people against one murderer. I wouldn't be surprised one bit if Brian had helped that night. His DNA has been found at the scene on a knife sheath that was left behind, and he drives the white Hyundai Elantra that police have been looking for. So I have no doubt he murdered the victims, but his behavior and the unharmed roommates, the one in particular who looked at him face to face and just decided to go back in her room and not do anything, makes me think something bigger's going on, and I'm sure we'll learn a lot more soon. I really hope the police don't pull a Chris Watts in this case. And if you're not familiar, Chris Watts is a man from Colorado who killed his whole family and confessed to it within a couple of days. Because police got their confession, they got their bad guy, there was no need for them to look into it further. However, true crime junkies like us have looked into it, and many believe that his mistress was heavily involved in the planning, the attack, and even the disposal of his family's bodies. 
but police got their guy, so there was no need for them to keep going. So I hope the detectives have looked at this and will look at it deeper, and I hope we learn more. Secondly, I was shocked to wake up to the news of a Utah family today of eight being shot to death in their home in Enoch. Police were called by a concerned family member to do a welfare check on their home in Enoch Wednesday night, and when they arrived, they found eight bodies killed inside of their own home. When I read that article, there was no mention of the suspect, their age, or their relation to the victims, but I immediately thought to myself, it was the father. He was vengeful because something must have happened with his wife. He's likely in his mid-30s to early 40s, and he murdered his whole family before turning the gun on himself. Sure enough, a couple hours later, another article came out saying, Father identified as suspect in murder-suicide of Utah family of eight. Michael Haight, 42, was described as a suspect in the deaths of his family that included their wife, five children, and his mother-in-law. The article mentions that the mother, Tasha Haight, recently filed for divorce. Then he killed his five children, his wife, and her 78-year-old mother. Sadly, the pattern of familicide is all too predictable and common. It's usually fathers driven by divorce or cheating or something that threatens their family dynamic. They then kill the children and their wife, then themselves. In most cases, familicide happens on weekends because that's when everyone's home. But last night, people were just home for dinner, home from school, and it was family time. I'm sure their family and community are horrified by this news, and from what I've read, they were well-loved by so many friends at school and in their neighborhood. While we may never know exactly what happened in the home, I'm sure the last moments for the family were terrifying. I can't imagine their pain the loved ones are going through at this time, and I'm sending all the love and healing vibes I can muster up. Now, with those heavy bits of news out of the way, let's read a fun Reddit story. Hold on, I need to process everything. Yeah, let's get um, to our comments. Yeah, it's so sad. I saw the headline. I did see that article. Um, I didn't know. I didn't hear anything about the dad, though. I just saw that the family was was shot. Incredibly sad and unfortunate. Imagine being one of the kids. And, you know, if you shot the mom first, you know, and then being the kid witnessing that, whether you know, it doesn't matter the order, it's just such a horrible way to have one's life end so quickly, too. Oh, totally. And it's, you know, we might never know, but I'm sure it was just his anger about the divorce and the wife filing for it and him just needing a sense of control again. So it sounds like they haven't found anything like a suicide note or like a journal. Not at this time. I have not found any reports of it, but okay. I'm sure in the next few days we'll be learning more. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. Do you have any thoughts about Brian Koberger and this news of the unharmed roommate facing him? So is the reason why he was a suspect at first because they found his DNA at the crime scene? So they haven't released that yet. We don't know why he was a suspect or what linked him to it. We just know that he drove the white Hyundai Elantra that people told cops to look for. And they did test his DNA and it was found at the scene. So somehow, I don't know if they were tipped off. I mean, there was rumors of the girls having a stalker. And it's true that he had been following them around for quite some time. Like his cell phone would ping off the same towers theirs would at the same times for weeks. 
Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that's another wild story. Honestly, it just sounds like he's ripping off Ted Bundy and just when, when Mr. Theodore went nuts and killed all those, um, well, he was already nuts, but when he went and killed all those sorority girls down in Florida, mm-hmm. same type of thing. I, I'm guessing, didn't Ted Bundy wear a mask? Ski mask? I think he did on in some, some yeah, of his murders. Yeah, and so there you go. Boom, wearing a mask. He, it's like he's duplicating, re, re, redoing what Mr. Theodore has done. Yeah, he's pretty sick-minded. Wouldn't be surprised if he was like, oh, I'm a criminology major. I can just go ahead and get away with murder. I crowdsourced how to get away with it. I know everything now. Yeah, and I also thought it was very suspicious when I first read about everything that was going on and the roommates, like, some were spared. I'm like, that's why. Why were they spared? Whenever someone's spared, it's because they're involved. Yeah. So your theory makes so much sense. I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah, they were definitely involved. And I don't know anything about the second roommate who wasn't harmed. Now, I might be eating my words in a few weeks when we learn more. But And don't come for me. Like I said, this is just speculation. But I wouldn't be surprised if the one roommate that reportedly came face-to-face with Brian uh, was in cahoots with him this whole time and then was like, well, we got to leave someone alive to make me being alive more believable, like as if we're sleeping. Mm, That's another... Yeah, that's another good point. Yeah, because it it would make more sense for him to kill everyone, no witnesses, especially if she wakes up, sees him, and then he just walks by her. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, she even like made a point of saying, "I didn't recognize him." Uh, Eh. Mm. Mm. I guess only time will tell. But I'm highly suspicious right now. Me too. Maybe we'll. We'll find out soon. Hopefully. All right. Well, entertain us with a good Reddit story now. All right, you guys. So with all that heavy stuff out of the way, sorry if that dampened your day, but now we have an unsettling encounter in the Sierras posted on r slash Backwoods Creepy by the Voodoo Clam. This story is unfortunately true. I grew up in the Sierra Nevadas. I wasn't big on camping, but spent a good chunk of my childhood weekends hiking with family and friends. The summer that I was 16, about 10 years ago, my cousin C had come back from her first year of college and her boyfriend Jay was visiting. Jay wanted to go on a hike with Lake Views and C and I knew just the one. It was one of our absolute favorites. The three of us set off on the hike. The trail isn't the easiest to find, but it's really popular with locals because of the views and the general lack of tourists. We saw a couple of other hikers, some with dogs. It's an in-and-out trail that takes about two to three hours to the top, two to three hours back down. There are some smaller trails that branch off, too. We make it to the top in good time and enjoy our lunches overlooking the lake. After about an hour, we hear a scream in the distance, specifically a mountain lion scream. If you've never heard a mountain lion scream, it's really unnerving. It sounds a bit like a very loud, terrified woman. This is not good, because when a mountain lion screams, it's part of a mating ritual. That means that there are multiple mountain lions in close, too. 
The bears in the Sierras are softies, but the mountain lions will attack you. They'll attack your pets. They've even been known to attack bikers. Jay was really freaked out. C and I were wary, but it wasn't the first time we'd heard mountain lions, and we had both seen them before. We decided that C and Jay would hike back up to retrieve his phone, and I would stay there on the trail to warn any other potential hikers that there are lions in the area. This is obviously not ideal for any of us, but seemed like the best choice at the time. I found a nice rock to sit on by the trail and was going through the pictures we took. C and J had been gone for around 50 minutes when I heard the scream again. And it's hard to tell, but I think it's closer than before. I start to freak out because being alone is not good if a mountain lion's nearby. About 20 minutes after that, I hear the scream again, and there's no doubt that it's closer. Logically, I know that lions don't scream when hunting. They're quiet. If a lion was hunting me, I wouldn't know it. Yet that knowledge didn't make me any less scared. A couple minutes after that, I hear it again, extremely close by. I'm looking around and trying to find the best place for me to stand, back covered, in case of the worst. Suddenly, I see something out of the corner of my eye. Standing still 20 feet down the trail, a couple feet off of it, is a man. He's completely naked. He's filthy and skinny, and he's just standing there, looking at me. If you don't know where you're going, it's easy to get lost in the woods around here, and it doesn't take long being alone, lacking food and water in the wilderness to make people a little bit disoriented, a little crazy. My immediate response is that this man is probably a lost hiker, and judging by how dirty he was, he'd been lost a long time. He needs help. I started walking toward him, asking if he's okay. I suddenly get this feeling of wrongness. I don't know how else to describe it, but the hair stood up on my neck. I stopped in my tracks, maybe 15 feet away, and had the overwhelming urge to run. It seemed wrong. He looked wrong in a way I can't quite articulate. Instead of wanting to help, I'm now scared, but I asked again if he's okay. He looks at me, then opens his mouth wide and screams. Not a normal scream. He screamed so loudly. Worse, it sounded just like the mountain lion. It occurred to me then that we were probably hearing him this whole time. It was the single most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. I started screaming too. Why was he just standing there screaming? Do I run? Do I get out the bear maze? Suddenly, he closed his mouth, turned around, and ran into the woods very quickly. He disappeared into the trees, but the feeling of wrongness was still with me. I considered bolting down the trail, but decided to wait for C and J, who luckily arrived within 10 or 15 minutes. I told them what happened, and we decided to call it into the rangers once we got service. I've always been left with an unsettling question. Did I see a mentally ill lost hiker who really needed my help? Or did I see something else, something not human, mimicking the call of a mountain lion and stalking us down the mountain? The end. Ooh. Uh, scary. It's never good to run into someone like that when you're out in the woods. Right. Hiking. <laughs> and when you're hiking, you know pretty fast if someone is good or bad just based on what they're wearing or like what they're doing. Because if you're hiking, everyone's there with the same intention just to like be on the trail and enjoy nature. So mm -hmm. the fact he was naked and screaming is pretty terrifying. Sorry, that reminded me of... Uh, of uh, a knight's tale when they're <laughs> yeah. when they're walking down the street and then 
I think his name is Jeffrey Chaucer, shows up. Uh-huh. And they're like, dude, what? <laughs> He's just butt naked and he walks right past them. He's just hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> Scary story. I'm glad you liked it. All right. So, like a lot of people, I have a fear of the ocean. Same. I was just telling my coworkers about my telassophobia today. <laughs> is that how it's pronounced? That's how I always pronounce it. I thought it was the la- I could be wrong. Thalassophobia. Perhaps. I yeah. mean, it is a th. Yeah. So I'm probably just being bad at English. We both share the same, the same fear. Like, yeah. I'm wimpy to the point where I actually don't ever really care or want to go on a cruise because of that. Uh, <laughs> and that's just me. But. Same. I don't even like swimming pools that much because I'll be in the water and I'll just like start thinking about it and then I get creeped out. Never know what's under you. I guess not. There's a shark in the pool, you know? Yeah. Funny you say that. Uh, So. No. (laughs) uh, So I honestly believe that there are sea creatures that we have yet to be discovered like a legitimate megalodon, right? Uh, I think sharks in particular are fascinating creatures. Would I want to swim with the sharks? No. But I love learning about them. It's kind of a weird thing. Dude, sharks are cool. Sharks are really cool. They're misunderstood. But they're... They're the... I I don't know what to... They're just like the terror of the deep. Thanks, Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Jaws is a great movie. What are you talking about? (laughs) So, our story takes place in Sydney, Australia on the 25th of April, 1935. A father and son wanted to enjoy the day by going fishing off of the coast of Coogee Beach. To backtrack a little bit, the father owns the Coogee Aquarium and was hoping to catch new fish to fill their exhibits. Luckily, they were able to catch a tiger shark. And if you guys don't know, tiger sharks are pretty big. They have stripes on them like tigers, and they're, they're, they're scary. Excited by this, they quickly rushed it back to the aquarium, and the shark became the talk of the town for the next few weeks. But why? It's just a shark, right? About a week after it was in the aquarium, it got some type of stage fright or something to the point where it just threw up. All the contents in its stomach came right out. Inside were a rat, a bird, and another smaller shark. Wait, what? <laughs> That's how big these tiger sharks are. Were they feeding it rats and birds? No, I don't think they were feeding it really at all at that point. It was fresh into the tank. Where did it get a rat and a bird? <laughs> uh, birds like to hover. Uh, okay, explainable, yeah. I don't know about the rat, though. Just going for a swim. A fatal swim. Yeah. Disgusted and watching, the onlookers noticed that something else came out of the smaller shark's mouth. A human arm. What? No. (laughs) Some poor soul had fought with a shark and lost their arm. Maybe a surfer. The exhibit quickly closed down and they retrieved the arm for further examination. Quickly, authorities were able to determine that the arm didn't have any bite marks on it. It had been cut off. They dissected the shark to find more of the body the arm belonged to but couldn't find anything related. This had quickly turned into a homicide investigation. What? Oh my gosh. 
Imagine like killing someone and chopping them up and throwing them to your sharks and being like, that'll take care of it. I mean, it is Australia. They have plenty of sharks. And there, there was uh, <laughs> Arnar <laughs> Clayar. <laughs> so police investigated the arm and discovered a few things. One, it was cut with a knife or a sharp object, not bitten by a shark. There were zero teeth marks. So the shark even swallowed it whole. Hmm, okay. Two, it had rope burns around the wrist, implying that at one point before it was severed, it was tied to something. And three, it had a tattoo of a boxer on it. Oh, and I'll show you pictures later. I have the picture of the arm. Once again, police tried looking for the rest of the body that the arm belonged to, but couldn't find anything in the shark. This baffled authorities because it meant that a man was most likely fed to the sharks piece by piece. To help identify the arm, police posted a description of the arm and tattoo. The fingerprints were intact, and the police were able to identify the owner of the arm as James Jimmy Smith, who was a boxer and small-time criminal. Wow. How is this not a movie? <laughs> uh, apparently, there's a lot of books on it. You can read books about this. I'm, maybe there is a movie. I don't it know. It should be. It's a, good, it, it's a good story. To make a positive identification, they brought in Smith's wife, Gladys Smith and his brother Edward Smith and they positively identified that that tattoo and it looked like Jimmy's forearm now that police had a name they were able to continue on their investigation until they returned to the aquarium to perform further tests on the shark when they arrived three days later they were hit with the news that the owners had decided to put down the shark and they disposed of the body what did that shark do? Yeah, I don't know. Senseless. Maybe, I think they did it because it was, um, you know, it was the talk of the town and they didn't want to be known as, oh, this is a happy place. Come look at our exhibits. Not, hey, you should come here and look at our murderous shark. Because at that point, they, don't, they didn't know that it was part of a murder investigation. They just thought it was a, a shark that just ate a human, right? Gotcha. Still sad. Sure. So because of this, it halted the investigation for a few days. That was until police were able to come across an associate of Smith's. This man was named Patrick Francis Brady. On the day that Smith was last seen, Smith and Brady were both seen together playing dominoes at the Cecil Hotel in Sydney. When police arrested Brady on suspicion of murder, they were able to get access to his apartment, and what they found there was very suspicious to say the least. The apartment was completely clean. Not a single thing was out of place. No blood splatter, no sign of a struggle, and no sign of a hacked body. A piece of paper on the desk showed police that Brady recently bought a brand new trunk that was nowhere to be seen. Mm, mm. How do you miss a trunk? And It's an apartment, so it's a small area. It was just big enough to hold up a chopped up body. I'm just thinking about him, like, stuffing this body into the trunk and it not closing all the way because an arm keeps sticking out. And he's, like, bouncing on the top <laughs> trying to, like, make it shut. It, it keeps won't sticking shut, out. so he's, like... He's like, I'll just cut it off. Pulling out the hacksaw. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay, so... Sorry. You know, like, the ad for Disneyland that used to play when we were little? And it was, like, a little kid who couldn't zip up his luggage. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. 
<laughs> just like just like sitting to, on it, trying to get it zipped. Yep, that's probably what happened. <laughs> so to summarize, we have a suspect that was close with the victim. There, uh, his apartment is super clean. He purchased a brand new trunk that disappeared, and also one more thing: Brady's boat um, was also recently cleaned as well, to the point where it smelled like bleach when police arrived to inspect it. Classic so, telltale sign of a murder. Yes. That was incredibly suspicious, but it wasn't enough to bring Brady to trial, so they released him. At this point, the whole country now knows about the arm that was found in the shark's mouth. A taxi driver had come forward telling police that on the day Smith had disappeared, he drove Brady to a person's house that belonged to a man named Reggie Lloyd Holmes. The driver described Brady as being quiet, nervous, and he always had his hand in his pocket. Kind of weird. He continued to tell police that Holmes was a shady character. This is the guy that Brady got in the taxi to go see, who used to be, uh, he was a businessman, uh, but like he he dealt in... um, in boats, like shipping stuff. Uh, but it was reported that he used his business to smuggle drugs in and out of the country. So, with this new information, police brought Holmes in for questioning. They learned that Holmes was a shipbuilder and businessman, like I just said. Holmes quickly denied ever knowing Brady and Smith and quit talking after that. Pretty much just said, I don't know him, and then, boom, was done. Where's I'm not my gonna... lawyer? Yeah, pretty much. When they looked into Holmes' business, they learned that all three men were working together, but couldn't find out what they actually did do together. Oh, shady. All three were low-level criminals, pretty much. Drug smuggling, stuff like that. With the taxi driver's testimony and shady dealings with Brady, um, they actually released Holmes and brought Brady back in again for more questioning. Of course. Sure. Later that day, police were called saying that a man had tried to kill himself in the harbor. After being released, Holmes went straight to the harbor. He jumped in his boat and drove out a decent distance. He eventually stopped, turned off his engine, and when everything had calmed down, Holmes took out a pistol and shot himself in the forehead. The blast knocked his body over the boat, but just only for a few seconds. Right after that, Holmes rose out of the water and gripped the edge of his boat and climbed back inside. He was alive. His foolish attempt to kill, to off himself had failed. You're probably thinking, wait, how did that not kill him? He literally put the pistol to his forehead and pulled the trigger. The bullet hit his forehead and his skull was strong enough to stop the bullet from entering his head. So (laughs) it just knocked him out for a few seconds. But because he hit the water, it woke him right up and he was able to climb back in the boat. What? What was he eating? Right. He's (laughs) a lot of milk. Strong bones. Guy's bones. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. He got milk. The gunshot alerted people at the harbor and they called the police. When Holmes had finally come to, he realized that the police were quickly on him. Holmes led police on a boat chase that lasted hours until he finally gave up. I think his boat just ran out of gas at that point. They brought him in for more questioning because that was very odd and suspicious that he tried to kill himself 
right after being released for possible murder charges. Bro couldn't even put the pistol in his mouth. Like, what a dummy. (laughs) The jig was up, and finally, Holmes began to talk. He explained to them that Brady killed Smith and dumped the body in the ocean in the brand new trunk that Brady had purchased. The trunk had been locked, so even if a shark did come across it, the shark would not have been able to open it. So how did the shark have the arm? Holmes continued to explain that Brady kept the arm and brought it to Holmes and used it to threaten Brady that he could do the same to Holmes if he didn't pay for Brady's silence. It wasn't clear what exactly he was asking Holmes to keep quiet about, though. You know, they're all in shady dealings. I'm guessing... um, Oh, sorry. I'm going to back up a little bit. Smith was a police informant. Oh, Oh, okay. Sorry, that was one big detail that I left. I keep forgetting to to add in. But it was also, like, not mentioned a lot. It's on the Wikipedia page. But you go look at, read any other articles and stories, they, like, don't include that. So I keep forgetting about it. But so what I think is what happened. Smith was going to turn Brady and Holmes in. Brady offs him. Goes to threaten Holmes saying, hey, this is what happened. Yeah, I don't know, but why would he go threaten Holmes? It just it's such a weird thing to think about. Hmm. Maybe Holmes had some sort of like dirt on him. Yeah, something. I just imagine him like going into whatever warehouse where Holmes is, holding the arm and like pointing it, like using the arm to point at him. Yeah. Like, this will happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> but like yep. the arm's just like flopping around. Just flopping around. So after Brady left, Holmes took the arm tied it to a weight, and dropped it in the ocean. Now, this makes the most sense because of the shark. This story started to make sense to authorities, so they needed Holmes to cooperate and testify against Brady in court because technically, Holmes didn't do anything wrong. Right. But why did he try to kill himself? It's still like, it's such a weird case at this point, still. He'd probably just upheave his whole drug operation and... Yeah, yeah probably good point. Had, like life in prison or something. So. Probably nervous that Brady knows what Holmes has been up to, so Brady's going to talk when he goes goes to jail. Yeah, if he's sure. smuggling drugs, he's got people above him too. Probably are more dangerous. So, yeah, I can see kind of his motive to kill yeah, himself. Fair enough. The day before the trial, Holmes was found dead in his car. Oh dang! Okay, that took a twist. He'd shot himself. Did he though? Exactly, did he? Holmes was found to have three bullet holes in his chest. It is possible to shoot yourself three times, but the chances of him actually doing that are incredibly slim. Did Brady kill Holmes? It would make sense to keep him from talking, but what made the situation even more strange was that Holmes took out $500 from his bank account the day before he died. They couldn't find an exact reason for this, and they also couldn't find the money or a receipt for anything purchased. With their only witness and testimony gone, the police were at a standstill because now it was a story against no real evidence to convict Brady. He was released again. So strangely enough, Smith could still have been alive the whole time just wandering Australia without an arm since they never actually found the rest of his body. Brady claimed till the day he died that he did not kill his good friend Jimmy Smith Brady died in 1965, and the case was never solved. What in the world? That's crazy. Wild. So here's some theories. 
So Brady was really good friends with Jimmy, so he couldn't go through with it, and Holmes really killed Smith. Mm. Because there were some reports saying that they actually, even though Smith was an informant, he actually did care for Brady. They actually were good friends. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, to explain the boxing tattoo, Smith was a boxer. I don't know if I said that, but just to clarify, so... Um, another theory is that Jimmy was working for the government, or Smith, excuse me, and got caught by Holmes, who killed him and disposed of the body. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's pretty much... Try to pin it on yeah. right below him. Yeah, maybe. sure. Yeah. Um, there is a book called The Shark Arm Murders by Alex Castle, and Castle suggests that Jimmy was a police informant who was caught by a man named Eddie Wyman. Wyman was arrested and thinks Jimmy ratted on him, so while incarcerated, he had Jimmy killed and disposed of. And so Brady and Holmes have nothing to do with it. What? So that's a whole other thing that we could go into, but you guys can just look it up if you like. The whole Eddie Wyman side of things. It's a smaller side story, but there you go. Okay, what if Holmes heard about Smith being an informant and was like, yo, Brady, kill your homeboy... I don't want to do the dirty work, so you do it. And so Brady's like, listen, you're my best friend. I can't kill I can't kill you. Just give me your arm. And we'll make it look like he killed you. So he cut off his arm and was like... And disappeared. Walk around. <laughs> you're, like, walk, you're good. Yep. Go. Jimmy, where are you? Yeah, sure. There you go. That is the story of the shark arm murders. Crazy. That was a really good story. I'm thrilled about this. Thank you. Thank you. I, My wife told me that my more recent stories have been pretty graphic and a little rough. Uh, so I decided for this week to go a little bit more lighter and bring some mystery into it. Dang. Well, sorry if they've been too graphic. I, I guess I didn't notice. Well, I didn't notice my either. My butter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like... <laughs> For us, it's like, oh, he killed his whole family and set them up in his family room. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it was the, uh, for my wife, um, she's going to slap me, but it was the, uh, my most recent Christmas story that she didn't like. By the way, she's not a violent person. This is all metaphorical. Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, I I guess I get it, but at the same time, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well... Do you have anything else for us? No, man. That's just process that's crazy. it. Yeah. Think about it. Stew on it. Um, Actually, this- real quick before we end, let me show you the picture of the arm. Okay, so that's a picture of the forearm. So you can see the boxer. It looks like he's boxing something on the right side. It's like covered by a shadow. Um, so yeah, forearm. There's the boxer. This is uh, so this is Smith. This is the man who went missing. This is Brady, mm-hmm. and this is Holmes. Ah, that's wild. Okay. If you guys are interested in seeing those pictures, once again, you can see those on our Instagram. I'm going to post those the same time that I post this story. So by the time you're hearing this, you can go check those out on our Instagram. One quick fact before we end here. Yeah. Um, I love sharks. I think they're so cool. Did you know that they are scared of magnets? I recently heard that, weirdly yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. They uh, It messes with their brain waves because they, I don't remember all the words that they used to describe it, but basically they can't hunt 
with the magnetic field being thrown off. Okay. And interesting. Researchers tested this theory by placing magnets around a huge, like bloody chunk of meat, and then another chunk of meat that didn't have magnets around it. But I think it, they just had like bricks that looked similar to the magnets. And the sharks would go towards the one with the magnets and like just turn away completely. But the one with the bricks, they were totally fine with. So. Science. Swim with magnets, I guess. Yeah. Yep. I'm sure there's a suit. You just put you some magnets in some pockets and some you'll be good. Like reef safe magnets. So if I ever go on a cruise, that's what I need to do. I need to wear a vest of magnets. Or stay on land. Just not go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Okay. All right. Anything else? That's it for me. All right, guys, we will scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye.